Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter number 2. Acts chapter number 2. Thank you, Rebecca and Caitlin, for that beautiful song. Hope you're looking at the words and contemplating the truth of that song as it was being played. When we've gotten over the love of God, it's time to return to our first love. We're like the church of Ephesus, and we need to repent. Amen? When was the last time the love of God stopped us dead in our tracks? captivated our attention and changed our life. I hope that it's been this week several times. If not, I hope today. I hope that today you are once again arrested with the truth. We've sung incredible songs about the gospel. In fact, I'm almost tempted to develop a series around some of these great hymns of our faith. Amazing love, and can it be that we sang this morning? That'll preach. Can I get an amen? I mean, that will preach. I'm thinking, wow, such great theological truth, teaching about God and the gospel in that. Might have to think that through and put that together. Well, we're taking a break in our beginning of our series through the book of Mark. We're studying the book of Mark on Sundays, but we're already taking a break from that to talk about something very important. And the title of the message today, as I thought about a way to title what I, don't wanna, what I wanted to talk to you about from God's Word, is uh, this title, The Journey in Following Jesus. Um, today, with it being Baptism Sunday, I wanted to take some time to share with you the differences between salvation, baptism, and church membership. So if you're taking notes, it's not hard today. There's just three blanks. And if you want to go ahead and fill out the blanks, the first blank is salvation, the second blank is baptism, and the third blank is church membership. Now, I've left some space below those for you to take other notes as the Holy Spirit would lead you and as you'd like to write down some things that might resonate with you. But I believe it's very important for us as a church, and I hope that this message, it's, it's being recorded. Uh, probably several are watching by way of live stream today. I hope that this message is something that we'll refer back to over the coming months and years as, we're, as, as we desire to be clear about the process for what salvation means, what baptism means, and what church membership means. Because in some religions, they assume that if you've come forward and signed your name on a piece of paper and joined the roles, that's what saves you. In other religions, they think that if you get wet, if you get baptized in a baptismal tank, that's what saves you. Um, and then on the other side, there's some who say, well, all that matters is salvation, and I can just be saved and be sitting over here huddled in my corner, all isolated and alone, and baptism and church membership really aren't that important. For After all, it's salvation that's vital and essential. Baptism, yeah, you know, if I think it's important later on. Church membership, you know, who wants to deal with that mess? And so the reality is, is you've got both extremes. You've got confusion on one side that says, well, if you're a church member or if you get wet, that makes you saved. And then on the other extreme, you have folks who say, well, all that matters is your personal relationship with Jesus. It really doesn't matter whether you get baptized or become a member of a local church. After all, you're part of the universal church already. And so, thus the confusion. How many of you have ever been in a situation or know of people in churches, maybe you grew up in one, where salvation, baptism, and church membership weren't all that clear? Raise your hand if that's you. 
I know as a kid, even growing up in a good church, I really wasn't all that clear. And so I hope that this will help us today because the reality is, is that, yes, of course, the most important reality for anyone to ever confront is their need for Jesus Christ to be their Savior. That is the essential step. But the reality is, is the church fails in their mission if we do not follow up beyond that step and teach on the importance of becoming a committed, fully connected follower of Jesus in and through the local church, through baptism and then church membership. And so what happens is, is as you study the New Testament, you discover that there is a simple process of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and what it means to be in this journey of following Jesus. And so if you see your handout there on the introduction, uh, just put together a couple of words really um, sharing this heartbeat of, of as we grow in a church over the next five to ten years. And by the way, welcome to Fairview, a small church in a big building, but with a heart to grow and impact their community with the gospel. Amen? Sometimes looks can be deceiving. You come into a big building, you're expecting a quote-unquote big church, and we really don't have any desires to be a certain number. We just want to be spiritually healthy and be making disciples uh, of Jesus through his saving and transforming grace. But the reality is, is as we grow, we as a leadership team have talked about the necessity of clarifying the steps of what it does mean to be a follower of Jesus and, and, and how one takes further steps into their discipleship journey as they follow the Lord. And so it's our prayer that every believer that connects with Fairview would take these steps in their own personal lives and see the value of each as they grow in grace and in the knowledge of being a disciple of Jesus. And so I hope this study is helpful to us today. So first of all, let's look at salvation, but let's look at our text, shall we? Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42. The Bible says this, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now, by the way, some say numbers don't matter. Well, they counted in the first century. Numbers matter. Why do numbers matter? Because every number is a soul. And every soul is important to God. And so, wow, talk about church growth. There it was. Now, the reality is, is when you go to the book of Acts, you have to realize about the book of Acts, there, there, there's a lot of religions and denominations that want to be book of Acts Christians. Do you realize it's almost impossible to do that because of the nature of the book of Acts? It was a very transitional book. They were going from the Jewish religion to Christianity. And so there's a lot of transition happening in the book of Acts. One thing being, in the first century, they didn't have a building that could seat 3,000 people. Which tells us right away that church isn't about a building. Thank you, Rachel, for, for reminding us about that today. We didn't come to the church building today, and that's the church. We came and gathered as the church, as the body of Christ. And so we see that here in the first century when they got saved, when they received God's word, then they were baptized, then they were added. And what you see here in this verse, or in these two verses, is you see a progression. Do you see it? They first received his word, which is talking about their salvation. It's talking about receiving the message that Peter had preached there on the day of Pentecost. And so when they received his word, when they trusted Christ, then they were baptized. And then they were added 
to the church. There was added unto them about 3,000 souls. And, and then it says, and, and here's the other kind of um, insight in this, the idea of membership. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Father, bless this time as we look not only at this passage of Scripture, but many throughout the New Testament as they show us the importance of these three steps in the life of a believer. Lord, I pray that we would gain clarity today on this, that you would help us as a church as we go forward, and even in how we bring members into our church that we're clear, and that, Father, you would bless Fairview Baptist Church as we desire to make more and better disciples of you through the power of your saving and transforming grace. We know that It's you that we need to see today upon the pages of Scripture. And we need to see your heart for the local church, for believers to be baptized, and of course, most importantly, for those to place their faith in the finished work of your dear Son. So, Father, would you lead and guide in this brief study into your word? We pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. So the first step this morning that we want to talk about is, is, is the obvious one. And, and many of us here today, I would assume, have already placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But notice here in our passage, it says, Then they that gladly received his word. So the first step in someone's spiritual journey is their recognition of their need for God in their lives. And for them to recognize that they're a sinner broken, lost, without hope in the world, but they look to Christ, the only way, the only truth, the only life, and it's through Christ that we come to the Father. And so God desires for every person who has ever been born to come to that moment, to that stark reality where they realize that they're broken, lost, that they're a sinner, and that they need Jesus Christ as their Savior. So they hear the good news about who God is and what God has done for them in his son Christ. And so the question this morning is, in your life personally, before you ever get baptized, before you ever join a local church and put your name on a roll, because as we know, membership goes much further than just having your name on a roll somewhere. Before any of that, the question is, not have you found religion, But have you found a relationship with the God of the universe? The God who loves you. The God who does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Do you know that God? Do you have a living and vibrant relationship with that God? No, the gospel is not what you can do for God. It's what God has done for you. Will you believe? And I love the word here in this verse. Will you receive? Will you receive the good news? Maybe you've grown up thinking Christianity is a lot of do's and a lot of don'ts. The message of Christianity is it's finished. It's done. Christ paid it all. And the simple response is by grace through faith to trust him and him alone. He is the only lifeline that can rescue the soul. And so salvation is the vital first step. We're not going to spend a lot of time on the first two steps because I would assume that a lot of us are familiar with them. But let me just say this about salvation, and that is this. Salvation can never be lost sight of in a local church in its evangelistic focus. What I mean by that is, is who's the church for? This is a great philosophical debate today. 
Who's the church for? And I get that the church is the ecclesia, the called out body of believers. But in that question, if we're not careful, we miss the point that the church's thrust, the church's purpose is yes, to bring glory to God. But the reality is, as we bring the most glory to God, when we bring more people to know God, we can think we're bringing glory to God by filling our heads with a lot of knowledge about him. But the reality is, is if that doesn't translate to going into all the world and fulfilling the Great Commission, then we've lost sight of why we're a church. I'll tell you something that touches my heart regularly is on Wednesday nights when we gather together as a small prayer group and we pray. And I want you to know, and I don't say this this morning to embarrass him publicly, and I don't even see him here this morning. He might not be feeling well or he might, oh, there he is, I see him. Jim Sparks, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for every single Wednesday night that he is here. And the thing that he prays for every time that we're together is he prays, Lord, I pray that souls would be saved this Sunday. Jim, you don't know how much of an encouragement that is to your pastor's heart. Thank you for not losing the vision of why we're here as a church, brother. And folks, that is why we're here, to see people saved there, 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 there's no greater joy for us as a church than when we see new children brought into the family of God. The sad thing is today, some think that churches should not be engaged in soul-saving work. And as I mentioned, there's this age-old philosophical debate that, that happens in ivory towers where, where, where we talk about how the church is for the saved exclusively. But the reality is, 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 is if we never allow someone to come in and hear, I mean, when you read the New Testament epistles, the New Testament writers assumed that there would be unbelievers in their midst. They even called that out. They said, there are some among you who do not know Christ. And so the reality is there were unbelievers there who were attending, who were listening to the services, who were taking part. And so the reality is, is that church services, some think churches, church services should only be geared toward the saved and that the lost shouldn't be welcomed into the church building or at best. They should be overlooked or, or disregarded or ignored. Maybe we don't say that outright, but it's in how we ignore and, 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 and how we look sideways at people. Hey, folks, if someone's sick, why wouldn't we want them at the hospital? I mean, if I've got a life-threatening illness, I mean, my heart's breaking right now for what's going on over in China. And right now, if you would just say a silent prayer in your heart about the devastation over there. But if my family member was dying of this dreaded disease, I would do whatever I could to get them to the physician who could help them. And so, you know, is the church a museum for saints or is it a hospital for sinners? Yes. It shouldn't be a museum. It should be a headquarters for the saints. For those who've been, uh, who've been saved to realize that it's now their goal to be a soul-saving mission. Do you know how the country clubs over on the East Coast started originally? They started as lighthouses, as soul-saving stations. They started as these places along the coast. I'm talking about up there in the Hamptons and all those places. You know, all the ritzy. All those country clubs back in the day started as life-saving stations with lighthouses. And they were there to rescue people at sea. But somewhere along the way, they got comfortable and they created and they morphed from a life-saving station into a country club. I'm sorry, but I'm not interested in pastoring a country club. 
I'm interested in pastoring a lighthouse, a soul-saving station. And so salvation is the first step. And so church, if we've been saved, praise God, we know Christ is our Savior. But may we never forget it. May we keep it in view May we remember that we were once lost. When we sang about all I have is Christ today, did that stir you? Did you realize that you were once lost and broken? How did God break through the brokenness to reach you? I'm going to guess it was because of an obedient believer who either invited you to their church, invited you to an activity, who told you about Jesus. Yes, are we to witness out and abroad? Sure, that's the first and most important step. That's the mission field. But we're also to bring them in, to go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that his house may be filled. So salvation is the first step. Number two, though, we see baptism. Baptism. And so it says that they that received his word were then baptized. Now I want you to turn over to another story in the book of Acts. Acts chapter number 9. Turn over there with me quickly. Acts chapter number 9 is the story about the conversion of the apostle Paul. Before Paul was Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. And Saul was not a good guy. He was a Christian. He was a terrorist of Christians in the first century. He was going around finding out who were Christians, hauling them off to prison, and having them executed. That was Saul's mission in life before Jesus absolutely stepped into his life and wrecked it all. Amen. Stopped him dead in his tracks on the road to Damascus. Saul had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. He trusted Christ as his his Savior. And then we see this. Look at Acts chapter 9, verse 18. Now, again, just to reiterate, God sent a guy by the name of Ananias to minister to Paul, but Ananias was nervous. He's like, that's the guy that's been killing us. Are you sure, God? Is that the Holy Spirit's voice that I'm hearing? How many of you have ever been uh, 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 nudged by the Holy Spirit to witness to somebody and you were like, I don't think that, that doesn't look like a safe situation. Well, there's never any safer place to be than in the center of God's will and leading in your life. And we see that Ananias comes to Saul. And notice what it says in verse 17. Let's back up a verse. Verse 17, And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting hands on him said, Brother Saul. Now that took faith. What was Ananias already acknowledging about Saul? That he was a believer that he was a part of the family of God. Imagine how maybe that ministered to Paul's heart to know that he already belonged. Do you know what the church should, should continue to share with people is that by grace, through faith, in the finished work of Jesus, you belong as a part of the family of God. And so he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and rose, and here's that step, and was baptized. So Saul was saved, and now Saul followed the Lord in believer's baptism. This morning, you saw four individuals take that next step in following Jesus with their life. 
As we mentioned this morning, getting wet in a baptismal pool has nothing to do with whether your sins are forgiven. Those were taken care of at the cross through the finished work of Jesus. The thief on the cross didn't have to be baptized to be saved. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise and you can bank on that promise. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. However, every believer except for the thief on the cross that you see in the New Testament had this desire to want to follow the Lord and believers' baptism. Look back at Acts chapter number 8. You see this theme. Philip encounters an Ethiopian eunuch on his way back from Jerusalem. This Ethiopian eunuch was a God-fearing man. He was searching for a relationship with God. He was searching for a relationship with God through the Jewish religion, though. And uh, Philip, through divine uh, 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 leading, comes alongside the chariot. Here's the Ethiopian eunuch reading the Isaiah scroll. And... Thus and forth, Philip has a chance then to share the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. And look at what it says down in verse, um, uh, I, think, I think this is up there, yeah. And, and, and as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, verse 36, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What does hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, this is why we practice baptism by immersion. This is one of the reasons, because of this picture right here. They both went down into the water. Philip didn't just sprinkle a little bit on him, but he went down. Why is immersion important? Because it's a symbol. It's a symbol of our death with Christ and our being raised with Christ to walk in newness of life with him. And so it's a picture of what happened through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so the four individuals that, that got baptized this morning, they were making their profession of faith public in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Uh, this decision was very personal to them, and they saw the need to take this step. Again, not so that they could be saved, not so that they could be more loved by God, nor what did they take the steps so that they could be closer to God. There's nothing that brings us closer to God than the finished work of his son's shed blood. It says that we've been made nigh by the blood of Christ. That's what brings us close. Oh, we might feel closer to God, but the reality is none of these religious practices make us more loved by God or more close to God than what God has already done through Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave Jesus to be our Savior, His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so these individuals did not get baptized this morning for any of those secondary reasons. They got baptized to identify officially as a follower of Jesus. They wanted the mark in their lives. All of our baptismal candidates will know that I give them this illustration. Everybody tell me with, uh, say with me, what is this that I hold in my hand? It's a wedding ring, right? It's beautiful, shiny, it's gold. This is a symbol of what? Of my marriage to my wife. Now, if I was to go out today and somehow be working in the yard and somehow my ring slipped off, would that make me not married? No, it wouldn't make me not married. But what should I do if I'm happily married? I'm going to get out in that yard and I'm going to be on down, on, you know, with, with a metal detector trying to find that ring, Right? Because I'm proud of the relationship that I have with my wife. I want the world to know that I'm taken. You know what baptism is? It's telling the world that you're taken. 
It's telling the world that you are his, that he is yours, and that you are a follower of Jesus. That's what baptism is. It's an important mark. It's an important symbol in our lives as we follow Jesus. It's really the first step after salvation and following Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And so think about it. After all, if Jesus has already rescued us as, as, as our Savior, wouldn't we desire to make this public and follow him as Lord? And so they wanted to take this wonderful gift of salvation, and now they want to live a life of obedience and follow him as Lord of their life. They want to, and, and, and from that new heart that he gave them through the new birth, they want a new life in relationship with him. This is what baptism is. And so baptism and salvation have been somewhat confused in the church over the centuries. There are some denominations that, that, that mistakenly take the book of Acts and think that baptism is necessary for salvation. And the reason for that is because they're reading some transitional chapters where it seems very closely connected. The reason that baptism and salvation seem very closely connected in the book of Acts is because the Jews already understood this idea, this ceremonial idea of baptism. Baptism was something practiced in the Jewish faith in many different ways. In fact, John was already baptizing people. We studied that passage in Mark 1 last week. But he wasn't baptizing people for salvation. It says in that passage we studied that he was baptizing them to bring them to an awareness of their sin. And so they were identifying as helpless and hopeless people in need of rescue through a deliverer who was to come, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. And so there's a lot of confusion as you study the book of Acts because we're reading the book of Acts with a Western mind with a Gentile mind, and we're not reading the book of Acts with a Jewish mind, and we don't understand the transition that was happening. But salvation is separate from baptism. Baptism does not save you. Baptism is something that we do because we are saved and because we want to be a disciple of Jesus. So baptism is not about salvation, but it has everything to do with identification. And that's the way to keep that clear. It has everything to do with identification. But for the remainder of our time, and I know we don't have long, but I want to talk about church membership. Because in a lot of churches, here's what happens. And again, it's because of the book of Acts. When we read it, it's like they received, they were baptized, and they were added. And that all sounds like it happens right there in the same day. And it most likely did. Because, again, those 3,000 that were getting saved that day were all Jewish people. They already had a biblical background of the Old Testament. They already understood the process of baptisms and what that meant and what it signified. And so those three steps tend to get conflated and confused. In a lot of Baptist churches, when you get baptized in the church, you also become a member of the local church that same day. And as we have been talking about it as a pastoral staff and also talked to it about our recent deacons meeting, we believe that these three steps are three separate steps according to God's word. They might be close in time, but many times they're not because of the understanding and because of the lack of biblical foundation that we have in our culture today. And so salvation, of course, being primary and first, but then teaching about baptism, several of the candidates that got baptized this morning have been saved for several years. Many of them were saved as children. And the parents lovingly, in their wisdom, said, we don't want to put their salvation so close to their baptism so that they don't get confused. So that they don't mix up the idea that trusting in a pool of water is what saves them. 
It's trusting in Christ. So this was a discipling moment where they wanted their children to understand the distinction between the two, between salvation and baptism, but also the importance of why they needed to be baptized. And in the same way, we believe that there's a distinction between baptism and local church membership. Now, hey, when you get saved, you're immediately made a part of the universal body of Christ, the universal church. You're immediately made a part of the universal church. But what does the Bible say about the importance in your discipleship journey of being a member of a local church? And that's what we want to talk about. Because here's what a lot of people say. They say, Brian, I'm already a member of the universal church when I got saved. And I've even been baptized. You know, I was baptized down at the river, which that's fine. If, you know, uh, that's what they did in the first century. They baptized in the Jordan River. But why do I need to be a member of a local church? I hope that in this final point of the sermon, that this really helps us as we think this through. Some will say, Scripture does not specifically say, thou shalt join a local church. Agreed. You'll not find one verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt join a local church. But what you will find is, the entire New Testament is chocked full of assumed, of assumed, and implied reality that local church membership is an obvious step for every person who's a believer in Christ. Let me prove it to you from God's word, okay? Look at the very beginning of the church once again in these verses. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now you might say, but, that, but that's just they were added to the universal church. But look at the next verse. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, agreed, these verses are not in and of themselves alone the cinching reality of local church membership. But you see that in order for them to somehow be committed, continued steadfastly, they had to be identified and called out. The word ecclesia in the New Testament has the idea of a called out group of believers. So in some way, they were joining a local assembly of a church. They were converted, they were baptized, they were added, and then they were involved. So question, how can you truly be involved in something without first being identified and connected to it locally? Now, granted, in the book of Acts, they didn't have buildings that they were yet meet, meeting in. But we see the ideas here of local churches forming. But let's look at the rest of the New Testament epistles, all the New Testament books that were written to local churches. These books like 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, those books were written to specific churches, specific gatherings of people in specific cities. In fact, the metaphors that are used to illustrate the church in the New Testament only make sense as we think of groups of people, not individuals. For example, the Bible refers to the church as Christ's flock, a flock of sheep. How many sheep does it take to make a flock? More than one. So one sheep doesn't make a, a flock. Uh, we're also called Christ's body. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture in Romans 12 here in a moment about that. We're Christ's body. Um, one hand 
doesn't make a body. If you were to sever, don't, don't do this this morning, but if you were to lose your hand somehow, you'd be very concerned about losing your hand because you realize that your hand separate from the whole is not a body. Can I get a witness? Okay, yeah. Um, so, so your hand doesn't make a body. One limb doesn't make a body. Um, the Bible calls us Christ's household. I love this verse. It says, ye also as lively stones. I thought of the word brick. <laughs> hey, we're a bunch of bricks today. Hi, bricks. One brick doesn't make a house, does it? No, logically, one brick doesn't make a house. If it does, enjoy your brick. Go home, open the door to your brick. That doesn't work. It's a collection of bricks that make up the home. And so we're called Christ's building in the New Testament. And he says here that we're lively stones. And, and the value of the stones is in their connectedness together, Christ's household. The Bible also in the New Testament calls us Christ's family. One individual doesn't make a family. The very, you know, me alone, without a wife, without children, doesn't make a family. Um, it would look really weird if I was to drive down through my neighborhood today and say, and holler out the window, children, children, come to daddy. I might be locked up for doing that because a lot of those kids might not be my kids. Now, my kids, if they heard that, would come to me. Why? Because they know me, because they're a part of my family. And so the reality is, is one individual doesn't make a family. All of these pictures of the church, do you see, presuppose an organic unity that is grounded and founded in God's working in our lives. Look at the life of the Apostle Paul and the, and, and the progression of his conversion there in Acts chapter number 9. Ananias comes to him, calls him Brother Saul, acknowledges his salvation, his conversion. Then Saul gets baptized. And then notice, I love this verse. Notice verse 19. And when he had received meat... He was, by the way, he must have been Baptist. He received food. Can I get a witness? We're going to have some food over here for our children's ministry workers here in a little bit. We know how to eat as Christians. Amen. When he received meat, he was strengthened. Who fed him? Who fed him? Probably the local church there at Damascus, the disciples. And then Saul was certain days with the disciples at Damascus. Now, probably Saul didn't join the church of Damascus, okay, but he was at least welcomed in. And imagine the step of faith that all those people had to take to welcome Saul in, to call him brother, to see his baptism and believe it by faith. And not only to be a part with the disciples there at Damascus for these certain days, but then to exercise his spiritual gifts. Look at verse 20. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. So they allowed Saul to be identified with them locally and then to exercise his spiritual gifts. Wow. Wow. Now, of course, if you keep reading this passage, it's fascinating. Because eventually, he uh, outstays his welcome at, at, at Damascus. Not by the believers, by the way. But the people of Damascus, if you look up, it says that they were laying wait. The Jews were laying wait to kill him. Verse 23. And look who rescues Saul the local church. The disciples lower Saul in a basket outside the city wall so that he can escape to Jerusalem. And then he goes to Jerusalem and he's like, hey, I want to be a part of the church of Jerusalem. I want to talk to the disciples. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're the guy who was killing us. 
Aren't you thankful for a believer, a disciple who came alongside of Saul, Barnabas, and he spoke on his behalf, gave him letters of recommendation. And so you see these themes starting to be built here of, yes, salvation primary and first and important, baptism, and then being added to this local church. Look at this. This, to me, is one of the clinching verses. Saul says here, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. So a local church, but then he also acknowledges the universal church. And he says, and to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Saul understood that, yes, there's this universal church that we're all a part of, but there's a local church at Corinth and membership is vital. In fact, Saul was going to address a very difficult issue to the church of Corinth. And the only way that the church of Corinth could really exercise this needed step in the life of this sinning brother was because he had clearly joined the church already. He was a member of the local church, and they were going to have to take this difficult step of church discipline. Ooh, people don't like that word because it's been abused in religious circles, and it's been used as a, as a, in the wrong spirit, in the wrong attitude, but it's biblical. And the reality is, as we as believers are called to follow God's word, but how could they really exercise kicking out this brother for a time for the purpose of restoration and repentance unless he was already a member of the church. Do you see? Local church membership is assumed and it's implied all throughout the New Testament. So look with me at Romans chapter 12 just briefly. Romans chapter 12, it's, it's, it's a long passage, verses 1 through 10. We don't have time to read it all today. But notice how Paul talks about all the different functioning parts of the body, members of the body. And really, verse 5 sums it up well. He says, so we being many are one body in Christ and every one members of another. Um, the idea of being an unattached limb in relation to the body of Christ is an unthinkable reality according to the New Testament. There is nothing, the New Testament knows nothing of unattached members. Members are implied to be connected together. So that's why neglecting the church of God matters. Neglecting God's people when and where they gather is not like caring for elements of your own body if they were sick or broken or hurting. Hebrews 10.25 says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You see, the temptation in life is to isolation rather than involvement. And especially in our culture today, the temptation is isolate because relationships hurt and they're hard. And I just want to say to us today that yes, they hurt. Yes, they're hard. Yes, they're messy. And here's the reality. A church, you've got people from all different walks of life who are being saved and rescued by the power of God's grace. And so naturally, there's going to be things that we don't get along about. And I jokingly say it all the time. You know, you pull for the wrong football team. How can Alabama and Auburn fans get along together? But by the grace of God, amen? But politics so many times divide people. Listen, I want to challenge you. If you see a new believer in Jesus who is getting over-political on either the left or the right, and you're tempted to block them on Facebook because of their politics, you're missing the point. 
Yeah, they might not see everything politically eye to eye, but yet there's a discipling process that should occur in the life of a young believer. They had the same problems in the first century, but the reality is, is we like to isolate. It's easier. But these pictures of the church in the New Testament not only imply close relationships, but they also imply order. Paul wrote to Titus, a young pastor, and he said, Listen, I left you at the church in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I have appointed thee. And so there's also this idea in local churches of a church knowing who is in leadership so that servants might know how they're to serve so that relationships with one another might be clearly delineated by the truth of the word. Jesus prescribes an order of how to uh, deal with sin in the church in, in Matthew 18 and, and then in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul talks, or Luke talks about order. It says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. Feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. So the idea of oversight, structure. And then Ephesians 4, it talks about how God has given pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Talking about this idea of spiritual growth. Salvation is not the only step. It's the first and foremost most important step. But God saves you for not only a life someday in heaven, but a life on this earth, life full and more abundant in him. And so in light of all these verses that we've looked at, it's unreasonable to assume that God expects the local church to just function randomly and spontaneously without some clarity on who is and who is not a member of that body. And so... The appeal this morning is that if you are not a member of a local church, God's plan for your life in your journey with Jesus is that you become a member of a local church. Obviously, I'm biased. I would hope that that would be here. But if you're not a member, I want to ask you why. Why would you not be a member of the body of Christ? Well, it's just easier not to be. I didn't ask us what's easy. I'm asking us, can we really honestly look at Scripture and say that local church membership is not a step of discipleship in the life of every believer here today? And so what are we saying when we, when we become a member of a local church? Number one, we're saying we're taking a step of clear commitment to a body of believers. We're committing to that body. Then we're investing in that body, both with our resources financially but also, honestly, relational, relational investment. Not disconnecting relationally. Uh, using our spiritual gifts in the church. Investing in our spiritual gifts. So committing to that body. It's almost as serious as a marriage relationship, although I know it's not the same. But listen, commitment today in local churches is almost nothing. People leave over the smallest things. Would you leave a family for the same reasons? Or when it gets really hard, the challenge is, is when it gets really hard, you lean in closer. You don't eject. And so commitment, investment, and then accountability. It says, here's the commitment. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. They were committed. They had to be. It was life and death. And Honestly, sometimes I think that what the church is going to have to go through in the 21st century in order to really focus this in is some persecution. Listen, the, the commitment they were making to the local church wasn't, wasn't a social thing. 
Many times it was a death certificate. Especially with Saul. I mean, Saul was like trying to find out who was in the church so he could kill him. <laughs> and don't you love God? He turns him into a church member. Amen. So commitment, investment. It says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, every man according as he purposeth, purposeth, I love that King James word, purposeth, purposeth in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Listen, if you're a part of a member of a local church and you don't invest financially, what's wrong with us? What's wrong with us? We are to be investing. Listen, I'm just challenging you. And notice, I didn't even put a percentage on it. You know why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. He wants you to give what you have. He wants you to give by faith. He wants you to give because of his grace. Are you giving? Are you contributing in some way to the local church on a regular basis? I was so moved this week to hear of a private donor who saw a need in our church and was stirred to meet that need in a sacrificial way was such an encouragement to my heart for them to reach out and share that with me. And so, folks, are we investing? And, and again, not just financially, but are we investing our spiritual gifts to the body? Listen, we need more small group leaders here in our church. We need more, more folks involved in our, in our worship ministry. And, and praise the Lord for those who answered the call to be a part of our media ministry. I saw that place full this morning. That, that, that was beautiful, Brother Heath. That was beautiful. We had a lot of people up there. And so we see people. We, we need more folks in our nursery ministry investing there. Just one week a month, if you can, and if you're able. And so giving of our resources, giving of our spiritual gifts, investing into the body, committed to the body, and then accountability. It says in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, it says that if a man be overtaken in a fault, brethren, if anyone among you in your church be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So here's one verse on spiritual accountability. We know that the book of 1 Corinthians, specifically chapter 5 and following, is about spiritual accountability. So you know what you're saying when you join a church? You're saying, listen, I've been saved. I've taken that first step of discipleship and being baptized as a follower of Jesus. And I am opening my life up now. To spiritual accountability. When you don't see me at church for a, for a lengthy amount of time, probably more than two weeks, I give you permission to reach out to me in love and say, hey, we love you. We've missed you. We value you. We want you to be a part of what God's doing here. When I have a wrong attitude, I want you to confront me in a heart of love. Some of the closest relationships that I have formed with people in this church have been in the last 10 years when people had to, in a difficult way, confront me about something that I wasn't doing right, something that I was doing in a wrong spirit. And I thank you for that, and I'm looking at you. That's valuable. And yes, when brothers and sisters who've trusted Christ as their Savior, who have followed the Lord and believers' baptism, and they're walking a way that we know leads to death and will destroy their life. We do whatever we can to say, turn. Don't go this way. It's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy the relationships in your life that, that are closest to you. Repent. Be restored. Be reconciled. You see... 
membership is whew, something completely otherworldly when it's when we're talking about the, a local church. We're not a member of a country club with perks and privileges because we pay our dues. That's not church membership. That's a golf club. Church membership is commitment. It's investment. It's accountability. What are you saying when you join a local church as a member? Here's what you're saying. You might want to take a photo of this. I have found confidence in this place in the way that the word of God is taught. What I'm saying when I'm joining a church is I have, I have found a home in fellowship with God's people. I have established a trust in the leadership of God's people. I have found sufficient confidence to become a member. And in becoming a member, here's what I'm saying. Shepherd me, guide me, employ me, put, put me to work. I want to serve in my spiritual gifts. Encourage me, discipline me, bury me. One of the most sacred honors for a pastor is to officiate the funeral of one of his brothers and sisters in Christ who he's been a spiritual leader to. That's the kind of commitment we're making. Shepherd me, guide me, employ me, encourage me, discipline me, bury me. You see, a local church is a unique thing. <laughs> It's one of the only places where you can sit and sing, listen and learn, grow and serve, where people who are different from you, I mean, think about it, the rich, the poor, young people, old people, black people, white people, yellow people, red people, educated people, uneducated people, people from all different walks of life have one unifying factor. The grace of Jesus Christ and the fact that they've trusted him as their Lord and Savior. And with that foundation, you can get through anything. So the church is not some club where everyone is exactly like us. And honestly, the church is not a club where we're together and we would all naturally want to take a vacation with one another. Sometimes it's hard to like one another in a local church, but the command is to love. You know, there's been times in my 17, almost 18 years of marriage where I ain't liked my wife, and she ain't liked me. Amen. Amen, husband. But you know what? The call isn't to like one another till death do us part. The call is to love. And I think in churches today, we think, oh, well, as long as I like the music, as long as I like the preaching, and he doesn't preach too long, don't look at the clock. Um, as long as I like, you know, the leadership, as long as I like all the different programs that are being serviced to me and my family, I'll be here. If we took the same approach to our families, well, a lot of people are, aren't they? And we have broken family after broken family after broken family. Think about this question as we close. What would happen... If everyone thought and acted the way that you do in relation to the local church, would the church be stronger or would the church be weaker? I think all of us have to do some self-reflection about that today. As we think about commitment, investment, and accountability. 
And so with all that said, (laughs) these three steps in our church we want to make sure are clear. Salvation, essential. Baptism and church membership don't happen without salvation first. But then baptism is that personal step of discipleship for the life of a believer. And we as a local church gladly administer that ordinance to help them in their spiritual growth. And then after they are baptized, we start to have a conversation about the necessity, what we believe scripture teaches, of local church membership. And so with that said, we're going to become a lot clearer in that membership process here at our church. We've just prayed together as a pastoral staff and talked about it with our deacon team this last month. And I want you to know that in the coming months, we're going to be talking about, for instance, when a family joins a church, who is it that's joining if they have really young kids? Are the kids, number one, saved? Have they been baptized? But do they really understand local church membership and the kind of commitment they're making and the step of discipleship that they're taking? And so in the future, as families join our church, we're going to become clear in who it is that's joining in that family. Most likely the mother and father who have been saved and baptized and now want to take that step of local church membership. With the young people, I'm excited about this and pray for us as we figure out how all this works together and how we grandfather in the process that's been in our church for many, many years. But what we're going to do is, is as children start to come into the youth group, we're going to give them the opportunity to join the local church as an individual. They're still part of their family but we want them to see that this is a part of their discipleship. It's a part of their spiritual growth. I've already talked with a couple of teens about it, and they are pumped about that opportunity. We already ask our teens to serve here in the local church, but yet we've never really recognized them as individual members of the body of Christ. And so we want them to understand that. So uh, our our youth leaders, Jason and Jessica, are going to work with me and coming together with a five- to six-week curriculum that we're going to teach 12- and 13-year-olds every year as they come into the youth group. And so you pray for us about this. We're going to become a lot clearer in where members can serve in our church and where regular attenders can serve in our church. And so uh, I'm really looking forward to the days ahead. And so here's the reality. If you're a current member of our church, would you evaluate today your level of commitment, your level of investment, and your willingness to be held accountable in this church? Would you evaluate how you view the church today and how we are evangelistic in our outreach, but also edifying and building up the body of Christ. If you're not a member of this church and you're a regular attender, I want you to seriously pray about becoming a member of this local church or of a local church, because I believe that it's God's will for you to be connected, to be invested, to be involved. And then if you have never trusted Christ as your savior, may this be the day of your salvation. With every head bowed and every eye closed,